Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you all. Thank you for coming today to practice for yourself and for everyone else. We just finished a mindful eating workshop. We do these maybe three or four times a year. And each time it's different because the people who come are different. And sometimes the people have come recently to a mindful eating workshop. As one of them said, I have changed over the intervening months, and so now it's a new workshop. During the workshop, everyone became more intimate. First, intimate with their bodies. People learned to check in with what I call the seven hungers, eyes and nose and mouth and stomach and cells and mind and heart. And each of those are hungry in different ways and hungry for different things. But if we're not aware of that, we get very confused. So people began to practice with checking in with those seven hungers and beginning to combine them, the input from the sources of wisdom in our own bodies. We don't realize that there are so many sources of wisdom within our own bodies because we often disconnect from our body. We wake up in the morning and we're kind of disconnected from our body because while we were asleep, the body was doing its thing, breathing and so on, and then we were off in dreamland. And then in the morning we stumble around and the body's trying to brush teeth and the mind is sort of, uh, I'm not ready to get up yet. And then gradually over the course of the day, hopefully they come together and there's more or less one unit walking around until we trip over something we didn't see and we realize, oh, the mind wasn't actually really in the body. I was thinking, tripped over it because I was thinking about something else. So a large part of our practice is to bring body and heart and mind into alignment and to access these sources of wisdom within our own bodies, to start being consciously aware of our body and then to make decisions about eating, in this case, from the context of that awareness. So rather than having the mouth demand more tastes, which it will do indefinitely, we can say, oh yes, mouth, I hear you, but I also hear the stomach, and the stomach says it's full, in fact, a little uncomfortably full. So I'm sorry, we're going to pay attention to the stomach and not persecute it by having you put more things in the top that end up down in the stomach. Stomach doesn't taste. Stomach has no taste buds. Only the mouth has the taste buds. So it's not quite fair to the stomach what the mouth would like to do to it. So we, in our awareness mode, and the awareness mode is what we develop in Zen practice, a wide awareness of all sources of wisdom and information, and also all sources of delusion. And desire is something that can lead us off down roads of delusion very easily. So we take into account the desires of all of these different aspects of our body, but then we, from awareness mode, from executive mode, make the decisions about what to do or not to do. So how is this related to Zen Buddhism? Because it's a step in the direction of accessing a greater wisdom, in this case a whole body wisdom, 
So the aspects of enlightenment, which is what we are awakening, which we talk about as what we are on the path towards developing, is composed of wisdom and compassion. And we think of wisdom as knowledge. It's not knowledge. It's a greater wisdom, a wisdom beyond our individual life, our individual little compartment of of knowledge, temporary compartment of knowledge. So awakening is composed of greater wisdom, meaning bigger wisdom, many more sources of wisdom, and compassion or kindness, loving kindness, and also a sense of humor, a sense of humor about it all, a sense of lightness about it all, not taking everything so seriously. So through mindful eating, we can access a greater wisdom, a whole body wisdom. And this is a step in the direction of recognizing, for example, how much work the body does for us. So when we did the meditation uh, on the mind with gratitude, we have an awareness of, gosh, this body is working for me night and day. My lungs are breathing night and day without me paying any attention to them. In fact, sometimes we get up in the morning and we go to meditation and we think, okay, I'm supposed to. how am I supposed to breathe? No, that doesn't seem right. I'm breathing. Oh, I'm getting this pain in my chest from breathing. But all night long, our body's wisdom kept us breathing and knows how to do it. It's only when our mind comes in and interferes and tries to mess with it that we get into trouble. So a step in the direction of recognizing how much our body does for us, what a wonderful companion it is for us, a step in the direction of caring for our body instead of being angry at it. So as one man said that wasn't in this workshop but a previous workshop, I realized that I never listen to my stomach. I'm completely unconscious about how my stomach feels about eating. I never listen to it and I just dump food into it without caring at all for its welfare. And it's in there working all day and night to care for me, but I haven't been caring for it. So that was a profound awareness for him. From now on, he would really pay attention to what his stomach is saying and try to care for his stomach in the same way that it's caring for him. No living thing can thrive in an atmosphere of irritation or anger. And often, without knowing it, we're irritated or or angry with at least parts of our body, if not our whole body. No living thing can thrive in an atmosphere of frustration, irritation, or anger. Living things thrive in an atmosphere of kindness and love. And interestingly, in in the West, it seems like the last person we will direct kindness and love towards is ourselves. That's one of the reasons we do a whole retreat in, usually in June, practicing loving kindness, practicing metta. It always starts with ourselves. Because until we fill up our well of loving kindness, it can't overflow and be directed towards other people. But somehow we've developed the idea that that's selfish. It's not selfish, it's practical. It's just practically true. If we're not feeling loved, you know, we all know when when somebody loves us, when we fall in love with somebody and they're in love with us, we feel just loving. And it kind of radiates out of us. And we walk around and we... People can see it shining out of us, and they feel good. But we can't depend on another being. We can't depend on another conditioned being for our happiness, whether it's a person or a plant or a dog or 
We can't depend on another condition being for our happiness. It's a fundamental teaching of the Buddha. We have to find the source of happiness in here. And we have to find the source of love, of loving kindness in here. That's our practice. During the workshop, everyone became more intimate with their own mind, seeing how, for example, the mind panics when it perceives that it might not be getting enough to eat. And it doesn't matter how much is on the plate. Right? We saw that when seconds came down the table and I made my little announcement. (laughs) The mind... The mind will make us eat too much for lunch just in case there won't be food for dinner. It's a kind of mental illness that our our mind is perpetrating on us. And you don't know that until you really look at things, slow things down, like we did in the workshop, and look at what the mind is saying. So the the mind panics despite the fact that we've always had dinner, despite the fact that we're actually maybe overnourished, and we might benefit from not having dinner, this panic takes over and then we serve ourselves too much and then we have to deal with the consequences of that. Whether it's indigestion or constipation or being overweight or having diabetes or just feeling really uncomfortable for two hours. So we begin to see this voice of panic that arises about, will I have enough food in two hours? As a primitive ancient fear not related to our current conditions, but nonetheless something that is driving us from deep within. From 100,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago, when people died in droves from famine. But it's not related to our current conditions. So we can hear it, but we can realize, oh, this doesn't have to drive me. Everyone became more intimate with other voices in their mind that are related to food, So somebody talked about the rebellious voice. That's a great voice. And it will always come up if the the rigid voices, if the controlling voices take over for a while. The rebellious voice is bound to come out because it's alive. It has life within us. It's part of us. It's a wonderful part of us. So it will come out and subvert any rigid diet that we go on. People were able to hear what the rebellious one has to say about eating, what the small child within says or feels, what the inner health fanatic says, what the inner voices we've, we've, we've internalized from our parents, what the rules that they had, or, or the reaction that we had to, the, to their rules. So this is becoming educated. Fundamentally, Zen Buddhism is about deep, deep education, about who we really are in there. Everyone became more intimate with the powerful effects of certain foods, certain foods that have, we could call them the effects of drugs on us. And the processed food companies know this, and they adjust and tinker with the proportions of these, these drug-like substances very carefully. So sugar and salt and fat on our feelings of well-being. They have powerful effects on our feelings of well-being. And we began to experiment and see how small a dose of these very powerful mood-altering medicines is needed to change our environment. Then we begin to have freedom. This is the other aspect of our practice, liberation. Liberation from thinking, I need to eat a whole candy bar before I feel a little bit better and then I feel worse because I ate a whole candy bar. 
But I mean, it's, a, it's like a small miracle to see I could eat a few chocolate chips very mindfully. The, ex- the experience becomes huge in my mind. And the desired effect occurs after one or two chocolate chips. And many people spoke about the richness of the experience of, of eating one, one thing. One raisin, one chocolate chip, one tiny bit of sugar. And this is a real education about the inner workings of this being this being that we are currently living within, living through. Or one Cheeto. We had a little fun with Cheetos this time. Intimacy is the key word here because intimacy is our deepest longing. Intimacy is our deepest longing. Why is it our deepest longing? Because each one of us is alone. Each one of us is alone, no matter how big our family, no matter how loving and close our family, no matter how devoted our lovers, our partners, we are still alone. No one can experience what goes on inside of us. Even what our experience is with a little dab of hot sauce. Nobody can have that experience for us. So in that sense, we can't share that experience with anyone else. We can share at a certain level, but at a very deep level, we can't share it. Because we don't know what their experience is, and words are completely inadequate to convey an experience. No one can experience what goes on in our unique body, No one can experience what goes on in our mind. Even we don't know what's going on in our mind, so how can anybody else know what's going on in our mind? And yet that's our deepest longing. We want someone to know us at the bottom of our hearts. Sometimes some ladies might try to help their partners understand what's in their minds by saying it all out loud. (laughs) So I saw George, and he's doing okay. Yes, dear. Do you like the name George? I don't really like it because I had this boyfriend in fourth grade and he was kind of weird and his name was George. Yes, dear. Now, fourth grade, that's when I had to start wearing glasses because I took the vision test and I couldn't even see the big E and so I got glasses and I got pink glasses because I really like pink. That was my favorite color. Yes, dear. Oh, will you remind me when we go out I need to get some contact lens lens solution I'm all out. Yes, dear. Where Where was I? Oh, yeah. George, he's doing really well, even though he had the divorce, but except for his wife, she's, yes, dear. (laughs) So this is an example of how we try in unskillful ways to create intimacy, sometimes by just stream of consciousness, what we think we say. And we think, oh, that, you know, then people will understand us better. That's particularly a trait of women, but I know men who do it too. But it doesn't create intimacy. If anything, it creates the opposite. We try lots of mistaken ways to create intimacy. So we try drinking. Drinking gives a little glow of intimacy, at the beginning at least. We think we love everybody, and everybody loves us. 
and we're so clever. And everybody knows that we're so clever. But it's a false intimacy. And we find that out the next day when we, rec- we wake up to the wreckage in our living room. Or we wake up next to somebody that we should not have gotten into bed with. Then what? False attempts to create intimacy. Or we're lonely and we long for intimacy, so we go, for, we go to a party. And the conversation, including our own conversation, is so superficial and so inane. And it's false intimacy once again. And so we leave early and we drive home feeling all the more alone. There are so many examples of how we try to create intimacy in ways that are not deeply satisfying. I always like to look at words in the dictionary because there are hints about Dharma implications of words in the dictionary. So the word intimacy comes from the Latin intimus, which means a very close friend. It comes from the adjective intus, which is innermost or deepest, from within. So we're looking for that very close friend. Hmm? We think we can find it in somebody else. So meanings of intimate, characterized by a close or warm personal relationship, an intimate friend, deeply personal, private, or secret. A euphemism for having sexual relations. Having a deep or unusual knowledge having a friendly, warm, or informal atmosphere like an intimate nightclub, relating to or of the essential part or nature of something, the intrinsic aspect. So since the dictionary said it, let's look at the sexual part. That's where many people look for intimacy because sexuality is very intimate. It's the merging of two bodies. How, what could be more intimate? Two bodies coming together and interpenetrating. And then, of course, as, as sexual activity goes on, we lose our sense of separateness in the intense desire. And then in the climax of that desire, all sense of separation usually disappears at least momentarily. And then what happens five or ten minutes later? We're separate again. So we try more sex. We try more alcohol. We try more parties. It doesn't work. It doesn't work, ultimately. It works briefly. It's a temporary solution, which depends on another, piece, another conditioned being. And deep down within us, we know that we cannot rely on other conditioned beings to solve the issue of loneliness. Loneliness and then the unhappiness that spreads from it. So next to sex, the most intimate thing that we do is eat. Because eating is also interpenetration of living beings. We take living beings in, and we feed not only ourselves, but we feed the ten to the six living beings inside of our body. And if in, in the Mindful Eating Workshop, we become aware of the energy flow from ten to the six living beings out here who brought us the food, 
contributed to the food. So it was a very nice insight about that. So we had oranges this morning for breakfast. And somebody said, oh, I realized, you know, as I was looking, we did an exercise called looking deeply into your food. And that person looked back to Florida and then felt the the mind starting to deviate off into politics and brought it back to oranges. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Back to oranges and realized the weatherman in Florida who helped the the orange growers know when they needed to protect their crop from freezing, the weatherman in Florida had helped bring those oranges, delicious oranges, into her mouth. That's a wonderful realization. And another person commented that the flip side of that is whatever we're doing in life, we may be contributing in a beneficial way to thousands or hundreds of thousands of beings without knowing it. The weatherman doesn't know in Florida, doesn't know that we're enjoying the delicious fruits of his work. And similarly, people don't know that we contributed to their life in many, many small ways. So to not feel I have to win the Nobel Prize, to feel like I've contributed to society adequately, we're all contributing all the time in thousands of unknown ways. So in eating, we also are involved in interpenetration, which, which, could, which could help satisfy our feeling of loneliness if we bring awareness to it. If we invite those thousands of beings who contributed, whose life energy is flowing towards us in our food, if we invite them to the table once in a while and thank them, and thank them by eating intimately, to be present with the gift they gave us, and at the same time to be intimate with all the beings living within us, within this universe called me. And to be aware, I'm feeding them. What what would they like to eat for breakfast? What would be helpful for them? We can even tune into that. So like a mother with a thousand, with ten to the sixth children inside her, hmm, growing inside her, how should she take care of them? It shifts us from this kind of rigidity about, I should eat this, I shouldn't eat that. Oh, I've broken my rules about eating. Oh, I'm such a bad person. You know, that little small box that we're trapped in by the mind. (coughs) Mindful eating can help open that up and open up our awareness to what's really going on. So here's this very intimate thing that we do. Eating. And these two very potent drives, sexuality and eating both involved with intimacy, both involved with at least a temporary relief of this feeling of separation. We're seeking intimacy because it is the source of our unhappiness. The source of our unhappiness is separation. When you, when you think about that, separation and the illusion of being a separate being, or the reality of being a separate being but forgetting that we're not separate, That's the source of our unhappiness. Why do people fight with each other? Because they feel separate from the other person. And they want that person's stuff, or they want that person to behave in a certain way, or believe a certain thing, because they've forgotten the interconnectedness. 
when everybody forgets that in this mass delusion, then we're constantly fighting with each other. The source of our unhappiness is this separation. And this, this is the separation from the one, from the one ground of all being. You know, we have this Zen circle called an Enso, which I really love because it's a circle encompassing emptiness. And then sometimes the circle has a gap. And somebody drew one during last weekend's workshop with Kaz Tanahashi, calligraphy workshop. Somebody drew one that had little dots down here at the gap. And it was like little beings escaping from this vast pool of emptiness. And that's exactly what happens. There's this vast pool of potential energy which can take form according to the laws of cause and effect, takes form. Again and again, takes form. And then those forms disappear back into potential energy and then formed again into something else. Formed into you, formed into me, temporarily. And then we return to this boundless pool of potential energy. We were born from it in our deepest longing is to experience it again. It is our home. It is our original home. We want to go home. That's why we step on the spiritual path. We want to walk home. Our deepest longing is to go back. And so we try in this human world, in our various odd ways, to experience that oneness again through eating, through drinking, through sex, through parties, however... Some of those are more helpful or skillful ways to do it, like going out into nature, where we begin to feel the oneness of all of creation, or this creation, this particular planet. So we're born from it, and we will return to it when we die. So our deepest longing is to experience it again, but our deepest fear is to experience it again when we die. Isn't that funny? That's our deepest fear, the fear of dying. So we're caught between longing and fear. Caught between longing and fear. Isn't, doesn't that encapsulate eating? <laughs> the dilemmas with eating? How we get out of, out of harmony with eating? We're caught between longing and fear. Eating, when we're really awake to it, can be so sensual that some people realize they back off of that vivid experience. It's like too much. We can't take it all in. It's it's frightening to be so awake. So then we have to ask ourselves, do we want to be awake? Do we want to be awake? Do we want to be that awake? Well, maybe in small doses at first. (laughs) Till we get used to it. Then we take on a little more awakeness. And then a little more. We do this chant every day, Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Once on the spiritual path, it actually becomes, you could chant, "I, I am compelled to enter them. Once we realize everything is a Dharma gate, every bit of food is a Dharma gate into the awakened awareness. 
It's pretty amazing. Eating is an activity we do three times a day, as someone mentioned. Here's our opportunity to practice three times a day, to enter a Dharma gate, back into intimacy, a vivid awareness, true aliveness, and a sense of loss of separation back into the oneness of all interconnected beings. A chance for us to become intimate again with a multitude of beings. So back to this definition now, looking at it in terms of our life. Intimacy characterized by a close or warm personal relationship, an intimate friend. We keep looking for that intimate friend outside. And our spiritual practice turns us again and again into here to become intimate with this being. And once we are intimate with this being, we understand and are intimate with other beings. Deeply personal, private, or secret. Deeply personal. Personal beyond the personal. We walk through the intimacy with this person, out the other side into intimacy with everything. We are just one very close, private, secret example of everything. It's like a hologram. You know, you cut it up into little pieces, but every, every one has the whole picture. Each of us has the whole picture. And the way we can see it is to go in and through and out. Having a deeper, unusual knowledge. It seems unusual because so few people step onto the spiritual path and, and follow it all the way. Keep following it all the way. So we say, oh, enlightened beings, so unusual. I don't think I can do it. Yes, you can do it. Of course you can do it. But it takes a lot of work. It takes sustained, sincere effort. But it's so much fun. People also realized in the workshop that their practice had become grim and even eating had become grim. Mindful eating is not intended to make eating grim. Mindful eating is intended to make eating a source of insight and a source of joy and pleasure. So eating becomes grim if we take it on as a chore. Oh, I have to feel my body or I have to be really, really careful not to eat too many calories and no trans fat. So it becomes a chore. And then we wonder how we got out of balance with eating. We need to go back to the original primitive joy that children have in eating. It's wonderful to watch them eat. They have so much fun with food. And they have an inner nutritionist. We didn't talk about that in the workshop. But children given a variety of foods and given seven days without anybody interfering with them will eat a balanced diet. Just the right amount of everything. But we start interfering so early and subvert their inner wisdom and then We have to go to a mindful eating workshop when we're in our 30s or 50s to try to get in touch with that wisdom again. It's there, though. It's there. It's not in a book. It's inside of us. Having a friendly, warm, or informal atmosphere. That's where we bring loving kindness in, to this inner atmosphere. It should be warm. It should be friendly. Yes, disciplined. Yes, there's a lot of work to do. But how do you get children to do a lot of work in an atmosphere of loving-kindness, encouragement? So that same atmosphere in here nourishes us, 
helps us. And intimacy over relating to the essential part or nature of something intrinsic. That at the bottom is what it's all about. Our intrinsic nature. Touching it again. When we touch it, however we touch it. There's no experience like it. One Zen teacher said at a meeting, she said, once in a while the Holy Spirit descends. And I want to know how to make that happen more often. How to make it happen more often is to keep on the spiritual path, even while eating. Be intimate with your life. Appreciate your life and all life. Thank you.